You're listening to The Business Pickle. We recently hosted a panel event and we wanted to share it with you. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the panel on the real world challenges of doing business for good. We're really excited for today's session. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we all meet today. And I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present. So a quick introduction to the business pickle. We're a new research and business advisory that's here for leaders ready to do good. We produce in-depth research on a whole range of topics that are relevant to improving impact and present that in lots of different formats, whether it's podcasts, videos, case studies, articles, workshops, and more. And the reason that we started the business pickle is because we believe that business can be a powerful force for good in the world, but putting that into action can be really complicated. And so we don't have all the answers here at the Business Pickle, but we're here to seek them out. And we love bringing together voices from leaders in this space, experts, business leaders to show us how to make an impact through business, which brings us to our wonderful panel. We're really grateful to each of you for joining us today. I'll start with Daniel. Daniel Flynn is the Managing Director and Co-Founder of Thank You. Hi, Daniel. Hello. Jill, good to see you. Good to see you. In 2018, you led a small group of people who launched Thank You, and you've seen it grow from a small startup to becoming one of Australia's leading social enterprises. Today, Thank You's products are stocked in major retailers in Australia. Many of us will be familiar with the hand wash and body wash. Every product helps contribute to the end of global poverty. To date, Thank You has raised over $17 million to impact the lives of people across 22 countries. Monica Becker is the Director of Beauty, Personal Care and Health Products at the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute. They set the global standard for products that are safe, circular and made responsibly. Monica has over 35 years of experience in improving the sustainability of products and packaging. So a lot of insights to share with us. And finally, Melina Morrison is the CEO of the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals, BCCM. That's the peak body for member-owned businesses in Australia. Melina has worked for more than two decades for the cooperative movement, both internationally and in Australia dedicating her time to raising the profile of this sustainable business model. So it's wonderful to have all our panellists here and to kick off, it would be great to begin with a little bit of thought on what we mean by business for good. It's quite a broad term. It can have a lot of meanings for different businesses and leaders all the way from providing jobs, essential products and services, just the bread and butter of running a business and the goods that that provides. For others, it might mean becoming carbon neutral, donating revenue or profits to a good cause. It might be reviewing supply chain and thinking about ethics, environmental sustainable practices. And just yesterday, we heard the news from Patagonia that as of now, Earth is their only shareholder, as they said, as the Shrunide family gives the entire $3 billion company to a trust and non-profit, pumping all of the company's profits into saving the planet, which is a really remarkable move. And so I'd love to hear from each of the panellists, what does business for good mean for you in your context? 
Oh, thanks. I'd just like to acknowledge the panel. I feel very honoured to be on the call with Monica and Daniel. And Daniel, I can confirm that thank you is our chosen hand wash and other uh, products around the house. So thank you for providing some consumer choice out there. I think the Patagonia story is really, I mean, obviously it's incredibly timely for this conversation, but it really goes back to something that I was reflecting on overnight. And that is if if you think about the whole context for which we're trying to deliver impact through businesses now, we, we do live in market economies and most economies are capitalist and that is the economic system that's brought the world to to this perilous state of being on the edge of systems collapse. I just want to call that out because that's why a business leader like the CEO of Patagonia is responding because what is the point of all of this if we're generating capital it's to what end and I think it's just important to to take a moment to think about that because your report is titled The Real Gap Between Intention and Impact. For us in the cooperative and mutual sector, unless you can actually resolve the tension between the purpose of the business and the impact it has, then you can't really have business that is good for anything except negatively impacting overall on society, the economy and the environment. So I, I, rather than ticking off chosen causes, all of which are critical, for me, this doing business for good is really about business being able to resolve any tension between its purpose and the impact that it creates more broadly, its stakeholders and more broad, broadly the ultimate stakeholder, which is the planet that we live on. Wow, that's a powerful response and I love that that idea of the tension between purpose and the impact that we're creating and I'm sure we'll unpack that further as we get into later questions. And Daniel, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what business for good means. I think business for good ultimately is using the tool and the model of business to make a positive impact on people on the planet at a real simple level. And interesting, we're hitting hard on capitalism straight out of the gate. And thank you, our business is owned 100% by our charitable trust, you know, similar to Patagonia's latest move. And for us, we've sort of been anti the way the world's become, but actually interesting to see the role that capitalism or capital markets has have helped lift some areas out of poverty. And so there's an argument. And those that are fundamentalists on capitalism would say, no, 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 no. But can you see in the data, it has been a force for good. And like all good data, you can draw many things from it. There's no doubt that business and progress helps lift society. However, it's got out of balance. It's got absolutely out of whack. And now it's the destruction of people, planet, all for the pursuit of profit for that ultimate shareholder gain. And so I would say businesses that exist for good have figured out how to lead with purpose and have the business model support that purpose while also taking care of its stakeholders from investors to employees and leaders. It's a huge tension. Everyone's talking about it. Very few people are walking the talk and I think it's a, something for us to all wrestle with. And to you, Monica. Yeah, so, you know, I'm glad, Melina and Daniel, that you've kicked us off at that level of thinking about the business enterprise and what business for good is all about. What I 
want to do is to dig in a little bit more from my role in the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute, where our work is really supporting what I think is a pretty bold and beautiful sustainability vision with the focus that we have, which is on products and the systems that create them. So let me share our vision with you, which I think nicely addresses this question, Jill. So our vision at the Institute is a world where safe materials and products are designed and manufactured in a prosperous circular economy to maximize health and well-being for people and planet. We use a, a shorthand statement as well, which I really like, which is safe, circular, and responsibly made. To us, business for good are in the context of businesses that are producing products and materials and chemicals, and for companies that are selling products like retailers, is business that is keenly focused and is really marshalling resources to bring forth products that are safe, circular, and responsibly made. And we're going to get into the reasons why that's so important in subsequent questions, but I'll just kind of leave it at that for now. Wonderful. I think that really catches the discussion well for what we're talking about here today. And I'd love to hear from those that are listening in. Now, drilling further down, and maybe this is already touching on what you've shared there, Monica, but what do you see as the biggest social or environmental challenge within your industry or field at this particular moment? From a thank you context, we set out on this mission to help close the gap on the end of extreme poverty. So we've spent a lot of time focusing on that. And I think we look at the 736 million people living in extreme poverty right now, which is living on less than $1.90 a day. And we look at that as an injustice that must end. And so we are using consumerism and product to help end that. Turns out we spend a lot of money on product, $63 trillion a year is our global consumer spending. And so we look at those two numbers and, and, and extremes and we think, let's fuel the money that we're already spending to help right this wrong. But in the process, how do we also do that? By looking after people. So those involved in the supply chain and the ethics of that, look after planet. So how the product's made, how the packaging's sourced, those that follow the journey know we started in bottled water. And after looking at every single sustainable way forward for bottled water we ended up just deleting the category i think you've lost me maybe you can hear me but we exited that category and so i think for us the future of thank you product is about sustainable product that's good for planet and people this is our focus and it's certainly the lane we've been running in and in in terms of how you're thinking about looking after people and planet even in the production of those products i know that thank you's developed some responsible business goals are you able to speak to those briefly as well? I definitely can. We're in podcast mode right now. So uh, <laughs> our responsible business goals are our focus on protecting those in supply chain from the ethics on how the product is made and then through waste, water, carbon and the impact that the products ultimately make on the environment and on our world. Our carbon neutral, we have some pretty aggressive water and waste goals and it's fun when you set the goals then you, the deeper you dive into it, and we've been on this journey for over a decade, it's really complex to solve some of these challenges. You're on the journey and you got to set a goal and you got to run for it and then you make some really tough decisions to get there. That's what being purpose-led is all about. Mm. And uh, to you, Monica, uh, what do you see as the biggest social or environmental challenge for your industrial field at the moment? 
Yeah, so there are many, unfortunately, but <laughs> I'll just highlight two. And I would say the two to focus on for now are climate change and contamination of the environment. So with respect to climate change, we need to look no further than the unprecedented flooding that we're seeing in Pakistan at the moment or the drought and fires in Australia in 2019 and 2020. You know, there, there are many aspects of climate change that I'm concerned about, but I, I think I'm most concerned about human populations being displaced by these climate change-fueled catastrophes. And regarding contamination of the environment, there are two specific things that I have to call out. One is plastics in the environment and perfluorinated compounds, PFAS, or now we're calling them forever chemicals estimates from the American Association for the Advancement of Science, more than 8 million pieces of land-based plastic waste enters the ocean. And the trend is not good where we're seeing petroleum companies shifting their focus from fuel markets to plastics production, building new plastics manufacturing plants at a steady clip. Um, these uh, perfluorinated compounds or forever chemicals, just as another example of environmental contamination, most people know about these ingredients in Teflon pans or carpet and textile stain resistant chemical treatments or firefighting foams. And these industrially synthesized and toxic chemicals are now really present in every corner of the earth in our bodies, contaminating drinking water. They accumulate and persist in the human body for long periods of time and can lead to cancer and other health problems. So environmental contamination and climate change are two concerns on my mind every day among many. Mm, thanks, Monica. And to you, Melina. I mean, where to start? Everything that Daniel and Monica have said and everything else. Look, for cooperatives and mutuals and our members in Australia and globally, these businesses are in every part of economic and social life. In terms of member-owned businesses, they make money to do something. So the purpose of the business is its social impact. And that can often be care for environment. So it can be that the environment is the reason that the business or enterprise is established in the first place. I think in terms of looking at what issues are most pressing then, it's really the interconnected nature of all of these issues. You've got to have a sustainable life system to have any kind of human and economic activity in the first place. So environment is a first order issue for all of us as businesses and as humans and communities. But the social impacts that, are, that flow from the degradation of the environment, from economic marginalisation, the exclusion of people that Daniel's talking to, poverty, then also create all of those other social impacts that are creating um, issues for people that need resolving if we look at the SDG goals, those 17, they show the interrelated nature. And if you can't really deal with any one issue without also addressing all of the others as a connected society. I would say we've got cooperatives and mutuals that are addressing and have each of the issues that we've talked about this morning and everything else that has to do with negative impacts on the economy, society or the environment anywhere where our activity or our way of living is currently negatively impacting becomes one of those first order issues. Mm. 
And in the discussion, we're really hearing these major themes of climate change, environmental degradation, global poverty, and how all these issues are so interconnected. And it can feel almost overwhelming for people in business to really couch those things in the actions that they're taking to help on those issues. And so it would be great, Melina, just continuing your conversation about some of your members, if you could give us a practical example of where a business has made positive changes to improve their impact in one of those areas you've mentioned and how did they actually do it? Well, a great example is one of our founder members, Bank Australia, where they've taken the business of providing financial services and because their purpose is to benefit their members and not, for example, to to accumulate capital or maximise profits for shareholders. And that's by, that is by their structure itself. That purpose is delivered because they are member owned, not shareholder owned. They've really led the field in many ways in financial services for showing how the way that they run their banking service and the way they choose to use the capital and the income that the mutual bank derives from delivering its financial services can have a very a huge impact on their chosen areas of impact. That includes their environmental impact. So they are divesting through their through their, their business structure of any connection to carbon intensive industries. They've bought and manage a, an environmental reserve so that they can actually deliver a positive biodiversity impacts. They've given commitments to their customer owners to ensure that the environmental impact of their business is positive in terms of committing to net zero. But they've also decided in conversation with their members on many social areas of positive impact, such as their commitment to, to marriage equality. Wow, it's a huge range of areas that they're tackling. And yeah, it's a really interesting example of how they're disrupting the traditional banking model in terms of where they're investing that capital. Daniel, do you have an example to share? Yeah, look, there's a few that come to mind. I think in the social enterprise space, there are a lot of new startups coming to the table going, let's make purpose front and center. And and we love that. So that's impact in, in the future from this sort of entrepreneurial startup phase. I think one of the great challenges that we all are facing is how do we take social good to scale? Some of that's going to come from the startups. Uh, it was interesting. I think it was last month I saw Unilever, who currently still a competitor of ours, but they, for Australia and New Zealand, registered as a B Corp. And I was like, that is awesome. It's a step forward. Some will say, oh, yeah, but it's a big company. And how do you... Well, it is, uh, it is a big step forward. And this is what we need to push for. And we need to celebrate big steps forward. They're not easy. They actually cost something. They cost time. They cost resource. They cost a few other things. Maybe we'll touch on it later. But I saw that and I thought, good on them. We compete. But at the end of the day, we do not compete on doing good for the world. And that is something that we all have to unify around. So shout out to them. And then Patagonia overnight, I think that's just, that's beautiful. Mm. Excellent examples. And Monica. No, that's great. I love those examples. Those are really terrific examples. In our community of companies, you know, we have so many different incredible companies to highlight that have gotten on board with our program to improve their products, improve their manufacturing processes. Just picking up Daniel on, on some of the smaller and the startup companies in our community, we have a really 
exciting company in the US called Blue Land, which started up about two and a half years ago. So they're really a mission-driven company and our cradle to cradle principles were really in their DNA from the beginning. And they are a company that makes and sells cleaning products. They've started to diversify into other product categories as well, personal care products. And one of their missions is really to eliminate single-use plastic. So they basically revolutionized their products and they're very innovative in their category and developed a, an alternate, alternative format to cleaning products. Instead of liquid products, they've developed a powder or tablet form of product that they sell in compostable packaging that the consumer purchases and then reconstitutes in a reusable bottle. And that eliminates the need to ship water, which typically constitutes around 90% of the product. And this cradle-to-cradle philosophy is really part of their DNA. It guides their product design, development, and their packaging as well. Their formulations have been designed according to our very strict material health criteria. So they've achieved what we describe as platinum material health, really the safest level of product safety. Their operations are carbon neutral. And how did they do it? They really started up with this mission from the very, very beginning. And as I like to say, they pair profit with purpose. And then they did hard work to design the products and the packaging and their manufacturing operations to be as sustainable as possible. And they're constantly improving. So just, yeah, one example of a company doing great things. Really practical. Thanks, Monica. And it's interesting. We've heard examples of businesses where their purpose and impact model is being built in from the very first day. And then others like Unilever, as Dan's reference there, where they're working to improve on a journey and are making big changes towards improving their impact. Now, a question for Daniel. In our survey that we recently did of business leaders to understand where they currently see positive impact happening through business and what the challenges are, only 12% of our respondents agreed that impact is their customer's primary purchase driver and half stated it was either a minor consideration or just not a factor at all. Does that reflect what you've seen of Thank You's customer purchase drivers? And what does that mean for brands in terms of how they communicate their purpose and impact? Is that a troubling statistic? It's a can of worms. It's it's an important conversation. There was broader than Thank You for a moment. Some interesting research that came out that said 69% of consumers say that sustainability and doing good drives their decision. And then the research post-purchase was only 9% were actually driven by that. And so I think there's a part of all of us that wants to do good. And so our intention's really good. But when that translates through to purchase, it's a different story. And I think if we're all honest, many people would find themselves, at least in some category, kind of wound up or implicated in that statistic We've had a fascinating journey at Thank You. We had a consumer research done years ago, and it said that 56% of people that bought Thank You product didn't know about the cause. That's interesting. And so that was a huge number, and we all felt bad. Like, ah, we've got to market better, get the message out there. But interestingly, they were making a decision based on the product, the experience, the quality, the pricing. 
And I think we have to get all those things right. Where we've seen purpose work, we believe it, thank you, it's a driver of trial. So if you turn up with a good story, Blue Land's a great example, there are many, but if you turn up with a good story that's purpose-driven, I think you can definitely pique people's interest and then you can get trial. But if that product experience isn't remarkable, the pricing and all those other things aren't met, I don't believe it's a driver beyond trial. Now, if you get those things right, there's a second hit that we've seen our purpose play a role in, and that is loyalty. Because beyond trial, if you do get the economics and the dynamics right around the product, the purpose is the greatest driver for loyalty, brand loyalty. We've experienced in some of our categories and products the highest loyalty in the whole category, outnumbering all of the big brands that throw the money at it and the innovation And so I think in a bit of a long answer to your question, Joe, I think think in the study, I'm not surprised by the 12% stat Mm -hmm. because I don't know if it's the ultimate driver, but it is a great driver for the trial and it is an absolutely leading driver for loyalty. The caveat is you've got to get the the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You've got to get those needs met for that consumer and that is mission critical. Mm -hmm. I really find that helpful, the distinction between people trying it out once and also the power of loyalty in terms of how your purpose has an impact there. That's a really helpful distinction. question for everyone here as well is that our research also found 70% of people agree that businesses do have a responsibility to improve their impact in the world, and that's what we're really hearing today. But only two in five in our survey felt personally responsible to make a positive impact through business, which seems like quite a disconnect. So is that problematic? And how can leaders engage their people to take personal ownership in making a positive impact through business? Yeah, you know, I I think there is some conflict there when you say people think that businesses have responsibility for positive impact and yet people in those businesses don't feel personally responsible. What I would suggest there is that business leaders really need to make it non-optional within their own organizations. And you think they can do that by setting ambitious goals for their businesses and then ensuring programs that are needed to meet those goals are sufficiently funded and as I have seen in some companies, really tying personal performance reviews to concrete metrics or KPIs that really reflect those goals and those desired outcomes. My approach is a little bit different than really trying to coax and cajole and convince people. Just set up the business in ways where really it isn't an option. You just got to do it. That's what I would offer. Yeah. And look. I'd add to that, Monica, I'm I'm with you. I mean, this feels like it's a right to play issue for businesses and it's a right to operate. And then ultimately for the people in the business, it's a right to lead, you know, and and I think that might sound heavy, but the state the world's in right now, it needs change. And when you look beyond the bubble of the world that maybe you, you find yourself in day to day, there are big issues and business and leadership and our role, even as employees right around an organization, These small steps can equal big change, but I think we've got to own that responsibility individually at every level, shareholder, boards, the CEOs, right down to every team member and at the consumer level too. 
I totally agree with Daniel and Monica. I mean, it's it seems simplistic to say this, but it's easier to make a positive impact when your purpose is to deliver it. So I think the really critical issue here is if we continue to have business models where there's a disconnect between the positive impact from the economic activity, which after all, this is what it is, then we're going to continue to produce those negative impacts. This needs to be just business as usual, needs to be to deliver the impact, which is having a positive outcome rather than a net negative impact. And it has to be across the economy or we're going to continue to slide in the other direction, which is bringing us ever more closer to the things that become existential threats. Uh, the alignment is just absolutely critical. It needs to be economically rational to do the right thing. Mm. Mm. We've actually spoken to someone from Bank Australia who his phrase during his time there was that doing business for good is good for business, which I think is a powerful way to really catch that idea. And a question for you, Monica, for those that are listening, Monica was actually interviewed as part of our research into packaging, which is one of the topics we've explored at the Business Pickle. And during that research, Monica shared about the five-point framework that makes up the certification model at the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute. In our recent research, we also found that the most common themes and challenges emerging for business leaders were around climate action, as we've heard about today, packaging and waste, and also equity and diversity. It would be great to hear from you how the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute helps businesses with those challenges. Yeah, so I feel quite fortunate to be working in an organization that is quite holistic and is addressing so many important aspects of sustainability and business for good. And these, all of these aspects are really built into our sustainability framework and certification standard. So companies that are working with us are really addressing all of those topics, Jillian, that you mentioned. So we have five critical areas that we address for either products, consumer products, or individual ingredients or materials or packaging. I'll touch on those five categories quickly. So the first is what we call material health. And that category ensures that the chemicals and materials used in products and packaging are safe for both human health and the environment. We use a very science-based methodology to ensure that and basically getting requiring companies to provide very detailed information on the chemical components of their products or materials and screening those ingredients against a blacklist of chemicals, but going beyond that to employ toxicologists really to then evaluate the safety of the ingredients that are being used. Product circularity is a second category. And in that category, we address the sourcing of materials for products and packaging to maximize inputs from circular systems. We look at the design of the products of the packaging for recycling, composting, and reuse, and how at the end of the, the use of that product from the consumer point of view, those products are managed in the circular economy. Very quickly, we look at clean air and climate protection in the third category, water and stewardship in the fourth category. And finally, we include a category that's called social fairness, which has requirements to ensure that in the manufacturing of the product, 
safe, fair, and equitable labor practices are used and human rights are protected and advanced and strong communities in around the factories that are making the products are respected. So it's really quite a comprehensive and holistic framework. The other thing I just mentioned is built into the program is this aspect of continuous and measurable improvement or optimization. So companies that are involved in the program, when they first get their products assessed and certified, they have to set goals for continuous improvement or optimization that they get reviewed when the product is recertified after two years. So that really works toward this drive to just not stand still, but to constantly look at your products and your operations and set goals and then achieve goals for just doing better and better over time. And can you give us an example of, say, a business that's come in at one of the lower tiers in terms of how they're achieving on those five different points? And then what an example would be of what would move them up in terms of continuous improvement to a upper tier? Yeah, so it could take multiple forms. We have these five categories, two that really relate to the safety of the ingredients in the product and product circularity, and then the other three that are really focused on various aspects of the manufacturing process. And we're asking them to make, to set goals in all five of those categories. An example of continuous improvement can be further optimizing the chemistry. There could be some fragrances that are being used, let's say in a personal care product that are not unsafe for consumers if they're used at a high concentration may have the potential for some allergenic reactions so an optimization could be eliminating that fragrance ingredient entirely on the clean air and climate protection category we have these different requirements for the use of renewable energy from bronze silver gold and platinum so an optimization could be to install equipment to generate more renewable energy on site from one certification cycle to the next. You know, those are just two you mentioned, but there are many, many others in the other categories as well. Yeah, that's great. And I, I think what really stands out is the spirit of progress over perfection, which is something we talk about at the Business Pickle. That idea, we're not going to get it perfect day one, but we need to do better today than we were doing yesterday and really taking that approach. Um, but to our panelists, in our survey that we recently conducted, over half of the respondents claimed that their business is comfortable to improve their impact, even if it reduces profitability. Does that ring true in practice of what you're seeing? And do you think businesses should have that as a name to improve impact, even if it reduces profitability? Um, maybe we'll start with Daniel. Sure. Look, I think there is a definitely a strong school of thought that says it doesn't have to cost you to do good. And so that, and I think that is a design to sell shareholders and maybe an old guard of business thinking on like do good. And, and it's not necessarily wrong, but from our experience, every decision has short-term cost and it hits your short-term profit. So if you look at that quarterly or annually, it absolutely does. Now, long-term, we believe you're building value and you're building something to last. And so from that perspective, absolutely, it's correct that overall, long-term, you you don't have to forego profit or value by doing good. It's just an interesting perspective. And it's really encouraging to hear half the businesses interviewed 
are up for that hit. That is, I think, the, the big shift here. And this is why a lot of publicly listed organizations are finding it really difficult. There are people inside going, I want to do good. But there is a shareholder language that says we are all about doing good. But in practice, it seems that the pressure applied to management and the KPIs and the bonus structures are actually about hit the numbers quarterly or annually. And so that's that's a real big disconnect because you are going to short term, it's going to cost you. But it, if you're in the purpose space, it's not a cost, it's an investment for the purpose and the good you're doing. But it is a huge tension. So that would be my perspective on that. Mm. Melina, where do you sit on that? Well, yeah, absolutely. What, what Daniel's saying is, you know, it's driven by external factors as well. And the cost of doing good will be brought down or be equalised by some by requirements that drive all businesses to do the same thing. So an example is the regulation that's starting to emerge around ESG pillars, that it's just going to be an expectation that, say, climate risk is is modelled. If everyone has to do it, then it has to become mm -hmm. part of the cost of doing business. I think capital, capital and regulation are the two things, the cost of capital that are really going to drive systemic change because there's the desire to make the change and then there's the actual cost of doing it. And we need some macroeconomic signals, I guess, that require all businesses to move in the same direction at the same time in order to make it fairer and equalise that cost. So it becomes, again, economically rational for businesses to do that and integrate it within their businesses. I do think what Daniel was talking about, the tension between the way that motivations of business are set up to actually reward some behaviours over others is, um, is also something that needs to be resolved around business models. I mean, after all, business is about choices. So who benefits from the motivations of the business is indeed a function of what you're set up to do. Mm. And Monica, do you have anything to add on that one? Yeah, I would just agree with everything that's been said. I believe that businesses have an implicit social contract with their stakeholders mm -hmm. and I define stakeholders very broadly to be their customers, the community members in the communities in which they operate and, you know, the world. So. Um, you know, in, in my view, companies need to do their utmost to create sustainable and renewable businesses and products and to ensure that they're really preventing um, the business from doing harm to human health and the environment. And in my view, if this requires some reduction in profit, I say so be it. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it's it's pretty clear to me that that's that's what it is mm. and Jill just to add one more thought to this I mean I think there's also a hack to the system because what, what Melina is talking about about that structural change it is so critical and it has to come at the same time as that's coming as consumers this and and as employees this is where the revolution can kind of start bottom up as well as top down we can actually choose products that ultimately do good over others and that will cost us and that's the catch. Mm. Um, not always, not always, but sometimes. And and so uh, I think there is a challenge. We certainly find we'll walk a path of ethics and sustainability, and then other people we would compete with don't. And their products are cheaper and 
maybe more profitable for the retailers and they get good shelf space and the economics are brilliant. The ethics aren't, but the economics are. And, and there's, I think, always going to be people who are playing in that space. And this where it comes down to us as consumers. We have a choice. We have a vote. And it really helps because I think that will shift the dial from the bottom up, kind of create the fire on, on both ends. Mm. Yeah. Great, great thoughts. The top down, bottom up approach. And vote um, with your wallet, as Daniel said. Vote with your wallet. Mm. Yes, great thoughts. Um, and we'll actually throw to a question that's come through from um, Sharon, who's listening in. And she says, hi, panel. If you're a business leader who has the desire to do good, but you feel paralyzed by the risk of being disingenuous or even virtue signaling, how would you advise they get started and pursue positive impact with authenticity? Uh, anyone want to kick off? Maybe, maybe Daniel, if you want to jump in there. Yeah, or uh, or Monica, were you about to go? Sorry, sorry. Well, Daniel, why don't you start and then I'll pick up. You're running a business, yeah. so get us started. Okay. Look, yeah, look, I, I think it is a real concern. Certainly in cancel culture is sort of heightened. So if you say you're doing good, and our experience is if you say you're doing good, get ready for every activist of every group uh, to come at you to expect you to do more good, which is helpful, but also it's a pretty stressful thing, right? So I absolutely uh, resonate with that feeling of like not wanting to come across disingenuous. I would say this is where, and not to overplug the business pickle, but one of the things I loved about this was I thought, oh, doing good is co is complex, and so you got to think about the complexity. Business pickle, cradle to cradle, so many organizations, B Corp actually thinking really deeply about this stuff and so the good news is that you as a business leader do not have to do all the thinking yourself um, but you do need to stop pause and find the right people who are doing the thinking in this space and help adopt that there's safety in that um, but the heads up this stuff is complicated um, and complicated issues need sort of complex solutions and so you've got to take the time to do that and i think if you are genuine on that journey then step into it with confidence and know that you'll make some mistakes. But if you authentically communicate, here's our heart and intention, here's where we're going. I think that's a very good start and be supported by some great groups behind you um, to bring the rigor to the steps you take. Mm, great thoughts. And Monica, do you want to add, add to that? You would add that an approach to use is just to be pretty specific about what you're doing, to talk about the specific actions that you've taken and their specific achievements. Again, so focusing on the product side as opposed to the services side, which is where I'm focused. Be specific about recycled content in packaging or the fact that you have some specific, even beyond cradle to cradle certification, but that you've done the testing to verify the fact that your packaging is biodegradable and compostable. Any kind of specific collateral in my mind is really much more credible and can really demonstrate that you've done the work to design things in a way that are sustainable. It's not just these kind of broad statements that are really difficult to verify so that's just a plug for specificity mm. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I agree, Monica, the specificity is absolutely critical because the companion to authenticity is accountability. So how are you going to actually hold yourself accountable, not as a marketing word, but as a real thing that's part of your strategy? And frameworks really help in our experience around this. We've got a sector-wide framework called Mutual Value Measurement that we've developed with members for cooperatives and mutuals, and that's got six dimensions of value creation. And this, those dimensions and that framework becoming one of the ways that the businesses are setting up a, a set of metrics basically that through time they can start to measure and track whether they're actually delivering on the things that they've decided are specific ways of measuring and being accountable to improving on their impacts. is another one that more globally businesses are trying to use I guess as drivers. We've got to watch greenwashing because Consumers who can vote with their wallet will learn pretty quickly to distrust messages or marketing that says that a business is delivering something when they find it isn't. And that can just destroy a whole movement really towards a better way of operating. Mm. Great advice there. So we've, we've had find the people already doing thinking in this space. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. Be specific and accountable to what improvements you're making and find those frameworks that are going to best serve your business in making those changes. Melina, a question for you. In our survey, over half of the respondents identified that competing business priorities was the biggest challenge or barrier to improving social and environmental impact in their organisation. What advice would you give to leaders that are in that position? It's really hard for me to be specific talking about specificity because of the range of businesses, but I would just again bring it back. I'm, I'm sort of harping on it a bit to making it business as usual, that um, that. The impact is strategically embedded mm. in what the business does so, so that you're trying where you can to remove tensions between what you're doing, delivering the business, the core business products or services, I guess, and the impact that it's creating. Unless you can join it, join it up, it does become a strain across the business. Again, I think that frameworks like sustainability plans are a way of checking in that you haven't lost sight. You've got to keep all of the balls in the air, I guess, at the same time to make sure that you're not leaning toward one outcome over the other. And if the profitability is is a measure of the impact that you've created, then that's even more powerful because that sort of cost of doing business versus the long-term value creation part starts to become more closely joined together because you are indeed spending or choosing to use income revenue in a way that is actually building the longer term value. Mm. And tying into that point and the previous question as well, it's one thing for a business to set an impactful agenda or to think about the changes they want to make. It's another thing to embed it strategically, as you say, and to put that into practice. We've mentioned a few frameworks here. Would you have any other practical advice on how business leaders can make that shift from having that impact agenda or having that strategy in a document to putting things into practice? Yeah, sure. There's so many 
tangible opportunities in so many aspects of how a business is run and the product they're producing or the service that they're offering. And if you don't have the budget to do, let's say a detailed carbon accounting effort, pick one, two, or three things to get started. If you're making a product, find some opportunity, review the ingredients, find some opportunity to assess some of the ingredients and do some substitutions to known safer alternatives or tackle your packaging and find ways to lightweight your packaging so you're reducing the amount of materials that you're using. If you can't install some photovoltaic technology to generate your own solar energy, look for opportunities to do some robust offsetting. Don't don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, as they say, but just get started with a few things and you'll be making an impact. You'll feel like you're making an impact and I think it'll just feed on itself over time. Great thoughts. Awesome. Just to, to add to that, I think the this is a culture and leadership opportunity and challenge and culture we all in organizations have a role to contribute to culture but they say culture flows down from the top and that is often what we find and just in in, in that same way there's got to be built into the core right into the deep balance sheet of a business or right into that boardroom conversation this has to not just be an agenda topic but this has to be a, a leading agenda discussion focus kpis built around it to help ease the, the conversation throughout the rest of the organization. There's nothing worse than like one group in a part of an organization pumped to create change, but it goes nowhere because the system seems to work against them. So I think it's a really big opportunity. And also it is mission critical to make sure purpose is built in at the core of every leadership and board discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just if that purpose needs to be built in, then what principles are your is your business working to is a question that you can put up, whether it's B Corp, whether it's an ESG framework, whether it's the SDGs that you choose or a range mm. of those, both then become standard bearers of the principles. In the cooperative and mutual movement, we have a globally agreed set of seven principles that's called the cooperative identity statement and that's what all cooperatives and mutuals ascribe to and variously hold themselves accountable to that's that, that's the business the purpose of the business but it, it needs to be delivered so i think what are you actually standing for what are you, what are you setting up as your guiding principles Mm. Excellent. At this point, we'll throw to a question from the audience. So Tan says, hey, panel, we're building a startup that aims to help all people have more privacy and own their data. We don't have a physical product. So how can digital businesses do good for the environment, our supply chain and for the people that we're serving? Well, just to start with, if your purpose is to create more opportunities for people to have agency over the parameters of the use of their data, then that's going to have a very positive impact. Because if you look at what's happening with digital information, the extractive nature of that is often linked to the business model, that it is, in fact, the owners or the developers of the digital business their purpose is to make a profit from that transaction. So I would say you're off to a fantastic start mm-hmm. by creating a service area that, that aims to address some of those negative impacts. Thinking about how the stakeholders, the consumer, I guess, in this case, can be given real agency and voice in 
or co-design the business is really important. Engaging with customers, making them the purpose of the business, not the profit centre is really important. But it's such a vital area that you're addressing, not having a, a physical product. You know, we, we engage in digital commerce all of the time. So I think uh, purpose sounds very important. Any other thoughts to add there, Daniel or Monica? Yeah, I would just say, especially with a startup, create a positive workforce culture. I think Melina's right. I mean, the, the purpose of the company is really good. And think about other ways you can just create positive change in ways that don't cost too much money, create a positive work culture in the office. That goes a long way, I think, in many aspects. Yeah, just to add, I would say that just because you're a digital business, I think that is easy to see. Oh, we don't, not going to have a huge environmental footprint, but actually head office, your people, your team over time as that grows at will, you can think about mm-hmm. that. Heaps of positive and practical steps there. And then also your partners, who you partner with, where your data is stored. I don't, I'm not a tech guy, but all I know is that we have seen the rise of the dark side of some of the data farming. and But just the sheer volume of, storing all of the world's data it's having a huge impact on the environment choosing to do that responsibly matters too excellent thoughts they're really practical you know as a team this week we were reviewing the latest progress report on the sustainable development goals and it really made for quite a sobering read to be honest there's been a lot of disruption and uncertainty on a global scale over the past few years but how hopeful are you about the potential for business to be a force for good in the world in the light of everything that we're seeing happening and some of the issues we've talked about today? And maybe more practically, what do you hope to see happen over the next five to 10 years in business? I'm genuinely positive. I think business is tracking in the right direction. It's obvious in the movement we're seeing to things like B Corporation and more member-owned businesses being formed and socially purposed businesses like Monica's and Daniel's. But I do get out of bed some days and I really feel very distressed, I would say, about just how rapid the environmental change is happening. And I'm not convinced day to day whether we can move quickly enough. It needs to be all systems go and back to Patagonia. We absolutely need more business owners at the in, at the larger scale end to make those kind of change, those decisions right now because it is it's not particularly the climate reporting that's coming out it doesn't look great so we have to do what we need to do what we need to do and hope it will be quick enough every person every human being every business has to be part of it Daniel your thoughts my feelings on this is it's urgent and for me there's that real sense of urgency. And then there's a sense of great hope. I love Patagonia's announcement, right? Over, like, that's great. I mean, that, because because it's going to take bold steps, and and there's hope seeing others do it. There's hope looking internally in our little bubble under the little thank you rock. Like we see a team working on bold ideas, and I think that's what it's going to take in the next five to ten years. It is going to take radical steps. It is going to take innovation. It's going to take commitment from people to take great risk for a better world. I read last week about the famine. Uh, we're on the edge of famine in 46 countries around the world. So we have a climate crisis and a lot of conversation around that. And that absolutely has got to change. And then we have this like literally tomorrow, 46 countries on the brink of famine. We've had two famines in a hundred years. So 
they're not as common as maybe people think they are. And so that word urgent, it's urgent on all fronts. And I think certainly for myself, we're not paralyzed by this. It's urgent, but hopeful. And that's the posture of this whole sector, hopefully. So let's encourage each other, find ways to work together and keep taking bold steps is sort of my two cents. Urgent, but hopeful. Monica, what are your thoughts? Over the course of my career, I've been directly involved in or have seen firsthand such positive work that so many businesses have done to be a force for good in the world. So I'm really amazed by what businesses can do and they put their minds and hearts and resources behind efforts to be a force for good. And I'm very hopeful and optimistic that that there's just so much potential out there to keep doing more. I think, you know, we have this growing community of companies in the cradle to cradle certified community of companies that are being so innovative and are just constantly challenging themselves to do more good. In that sense, I am really optimistic. And what we need is to just to scale that and to just get the companies that are doing it to do more and get the companies that are not on the journey to get on the journey. And I do have a sense of optimism about that. I think there will be companies that will, for whatever reason, refuse to get on the journey. And I am hopeful that they will just fade away. (laughs) And my goal is to accelerate that process. So yeah, overall, in terms of business, I think so much potential for business to be a force for good. What an excellent note to wrap up our discussion on. A huge thank you to our panellists, Daniel, Monica and Melina, for taking the time to share with us today. This has been just a small window into the real world challenges of doing good in business. There have been so many insights and great things for people to take away that are practical and also at a systems level. And also to everyone in the room, all of us have our own challenges in business or business pickles, as we call them at the business pickle. And we'd love to hear from you. So if you are in a business pickle, no matter how big or small, we want to really hear what it is because we're always continuing our research into this topic. I'd love to hear from you. That's all we have time for today. A huge thank you once again to our wonderful panellists. We hope you enjoyed the session. Thanks for listening to The Business Pickle. Find us at thebusinesspickle.com.